Hello and welcome to A Gay Old Time. My name is Nigel May. You may know me from things I've presented on the TV. You may know me as a host from my radio shows, or you may have read one of my novels. You may not know me at all, and that's just fine. But anyone who does know me will know that I am very proud to be a gay man and hugely proud to be part of a beautiful queer community. This podcast is a celebration of that community, of its many beautiful people, people of all ages, people who have fought with their emotions and who have faced struggles and emerged victorious, who have had to tread their own path in life to live their real truth. People who inspire, who aspire and who always entertain. People who matter. Each episode, I'll speak to a person from our LGBTQIA plus rainbow, discuss their journey and their thoughts on our rich and varied queer community. One person, one life, one conversation, and I can guarantee a gay old time. My guest today is Adele Anderson, Olivier-nominated singer and actress, and best known as one-third of the glorious camp cabaret act Fascinating Aida. She has been with the group since 1984 and still continues to tour the globe as the trio celebrate four decades of entertaining. She is a proud transgender woman who underwent her sex reassignment surgery back in the 1970s and details that time as the moment she started to live her true life. Her life is as interesting and as compelling as one of Fascinating Aida's fabulous songs. Adele, welcome to A Gay Old Time. So now let's say hello to Adele Anderson and welcome to A Gay Old Time. Hello, Nigel. It is a pleasure to have you here. Um, I want to talk about so much on the podcast today, Adele, because you are such an inspiration. But I want to go right back to the beginning, pre-fascinating Aida. What are your, yes. uh, what, what are your earliest memories of otherness, of knowing that you were different to maybe society's expectations? Well, I have a vivid memory when I was three of saying to my father, when I finished being a boy, I'm going to be a lady. And um, he told me that wasn't possible. And I got very upset at that point. I was always running around with a towel draped over my head saying, look at my lovely long hair. And I remember vividly for Christmas, I asked for, um, well, I'd said a Red Indian in those days, be Native American outfit, because I thought the feathers would be lovely. They'd be like hair. And I got a sodding cowboy outfit for Christmas. I was, <laughs> I felt like Horn Davenport and she didn't get her cha-cha heels. I was absolutely furious. And uh, when I was at primary school, I always used to play with the girls. And in fact, the um, before the teacher sussed out what was going on, she, she thought it was very weird that I was always hanging out with the girls. And then she called my father into school and said, you're going to have problems with that boy later on. I suggest that you send him to a single sex school to get this business out of him. So that's exactly what he did. And I went off to boarding school. Uh, I was a cathedral chorister. And uh, I I mean, I got to wear a, a, a cassock, which was almost like a dress. But there wasn't any, there weren't any females around at the time. So you just had to get, I just had to get on with being a boy at that point. And um, it wasn't until I got to puberty and then I noticed that I only liked uh, boys. I wasn't interested in girls at all. So then I thought, am I, am I must be gay. And it wasn't until I went, I left university and I joined Gay Liberation in, in uh, Birmingham that uh, I started to really explore my sexuality and my gender. So first of all, I thought I was a gay male for a bit. And then I decided that wasn't it. And then I tried being a drag queen and that wasn't it. And then I tried being a radical queen like Betty Bourne because I met Betty Bourne and was very inspired. And in fact, somebody who's doing a research project on Birmingham uh, GLF, as it was then, um, uh, approached me recently and he had, what do they call it, minutes of lots of meetings that I used to go to. And I was apparently 
quite a firebrand. I used to speak at conferences in Sheffield uh, in my radical queen clothes saying, I know there are some people that want to change their gender, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> Famous last word. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, there's so much there to digest immediately because there you were, you know, a young boy knowing that you wanted to be a woman. I mean, emotionally, I mean, that's a lot for a child, for a young person to sort of deal with. I mean, how were you emotionally during those early years? In the early years, I had a, the, I used to have terrible temper tantrums. I was just, I was so angry all the time. My father had, had uh, decked out the chicken shed for me to have as my own little space. And one day I was so angry about something. I went and destroyed it and smashed all the windows in it. So then I had no space. I was just rage. I had rage all the time. And I'm a very placid person these days. I have to say that, that once um, I achieved what I wanted to do, all that anger went away. So do you think that anger came from knowing that you were in the wrong body? Yes, although I wouldn't have thought of it at that time because it had been suppressed because I'd been in an all-male environment and I left uh, public school when I was uh, only 15. My father found out I was gay and decided that he wasn't going to pay any more money for me to be amongst um, other boys. So um, actually he was going to kick me out of the house, but my stepmother refused. So I then went to college for two years, did my A-levels, and then as soon as I could, I left Home. I went. I went to. I was just seventeen when I went to university, and uh, I never lived at home again after that. So obviously, at that point, I mean, there was lots of you know trauma in your life, Adele, at that point, because lots of people weren't accepting of who you wanted to be. Um. So you know, when you were there at school, I mean, paint a little picture for me of how you were as a person. Though. I mean, what were your aspirations at that point? Did you have childhood heroes? Uh, was there a favourite teacher? I mean, were you a happy child? Uh, I was happy because I'm quite pragmatic. I thought, well, this is the situation I'm in. And also because I became head chorister of this cathedral and I had I had status and um, we were on the telly. We used to appear on the television. We made records, although I was incapable of keeping discipline with my choir, I'm afraid. But uh, but it was it was good uh, to be in charge of it. And I fancied that I was really very, very musical. I was learning the cello and the piano. I have to say, piano. I probably only got to, got to about grade three. A cello. I was I was really into the cello, and I longed to be Jacqueline Dupre. I decided that's who I was going to be. And when I discovered I was never going to be Jacqueline Dupre, I afraid I gave it up. I thought it doesn't matter how many hours. If I could practice eight hours a day, I still wouldn't get to that standard. So, so no, I don't want to do it. So um, I got rid of it. When did sexuality come into your life? Then, when were you aware of sexuality? I think when I went to public school, because of course there were there were I was fourteen. I I I think I was on the cusp of I must have sort of been going through puberty because that's why I couldn't stay at the other school because my voice broke and I went to public school and um, and of course some of the boys were eighteen you know so there were there were strapping young men I found that very difficult but there was no people think that public schools are full of boys having sex all the time and it what simply wasn't the case when i got to school because the previous year four boys had been caught having an orgy in the bell tower of the cathedral and um so there was a, a pall of puritan gloom had settled over the school and everybody was very much on their watch so absolutely nothing was happening and that's what was so tragic was because i was keeping a diary and of course i had lots of fantasies in it my father took it and read it and thought I was shagging half the school, if only. But <laughs> <laughs> nothing was happening, I'm afraid. And then when I went to university, there were no gay men in my 
uh, in my year, surprisingly. So I was, um, yeah, nothing, nothing really was happening until I until I left and went on the gay scene. So what about your first experiences of dating then, when you did get to the stage where you were going on dates or, you know, potentially hooking up with people? Um, what was that process like for you? Well, I, I was lucky. I, I had a very nice boyfriend called Jamie. He was a sweet little thing. And it was uh, it was rather saving me because when I first got on the scene, I was pounced on by four queens who decided that they that I I was um, good material to be moulded in their image, and they used to invite me round round for tea parties, and then they say, now this is what you say, and this is what you do, and this is the gestures that you do, and I could feel myself slipping into a, a really lispy queen, and I really didn't like it. And um, but they were, you know, they had quite a uh, quite an influence on me and they were very they were so upset when I transitioned. They thought they'd, you know, I'd let them all down, <laughs> let them all down. But um, no, Jamie was very sweet, but I didn't like gay dating very much because uh, I think in the club, you saw the same people all the time. You never really saw anybody outside there. And once you've gone around a few. I mean, what what did you do after that, really? At that time, then, there you were as a gay man and you had this group of friends that almost treated you as their muse to try and shape you into what they wanted you to be. But what you wanted to be, obviously, was a woman. So that's a whole sort of, like, minefield of emotional kind of, like, trauma and, you know, upset at that point in your life. But did you have a clear vision of what you wanted to do? Because you did transition at an early age. So were they, um, were you very, quite resolute in knowing where you were going with your life? Yeah, once I got, I mean, I, I, I did a degree in drama and theatre arts, so I knew I wanted to go into the theatre. But um, there were two obstacles to doing that when I first left. One was that I was unemployable because I was in the process of transitioning. And there were no, no parts for trans people in the days, absolutely none. And I wasn't... I wasn't either. I wasn't quite there yet, and yet I wasn't particularly male anymore. So I was completely uncastable. Um, and then, secondly, in those days, you had to be a member of Equity, the Actors Union, and it was a catch twenty-two. You you had to have an Equity card to get a job, and in order to get the Equity card, you had to be offered a job. And I and so uh, I mean, I would either have had to gone out to Turkey and become a stripper for a bit and got my contracts that way, but in the end. I formed a little musical trio and I used to um, sing jazz in an East End pub and I managed to get my two uh, um, contracts out of that and that's how I got my provisional electric card. But meanwhile, I had to work. I had to have a regular job because I was now, once I got to the gender identity clinic, Doctor, the infamous Dr Randall was very adamant that I had to have a proper job and being an out-of-work actor wasn't going to cut it. So... So I um, actually I walked in to sign on one day in Birmingham and they said, oh, we're, we're looking for people like you because we're opening this new thing called job centres. That tells you how long ago it was. Um, but we we have most vacancies in London. I went, yes, I'll take it. So uh, so I, that's how I got to move down to London. I was in the civil service for five years. And then I thought, well, and that, and that was a cut up point. You either took your pension then or it would be frozen until you retired. And I thought, well, no, I think I'll take the money now. And then I went to college, did a secretarial course, thinking I'd be able to do lots of temp work before I, while I was looking for for acting work. And then I didn't get any temp work and I ended up with a permanent job 
for, as a secretary for about another three and a half years. And it wasn't until a friend of mine, uh, an actor, I'd been supporting him for six months when he moved down from Scotland. He got a great big film part. And he said, so now it's your turn. So you must give up work and you must go out there. So I did, did a few auditions. And then luckily I joined Fascinating Aida. So I don't know what, what would have happened to my career if I hadn't met them. Because as I said, transplants didn't come along till a, a very much later. What year are we talking yeah. about at this particular point then, Adele? We're talking about the 1970s for transitioning. Uh, yes, yes. I was done by 1977. I think. So, so yeah. obviously here we are, you know, in the, the 2020s and it's like, you know, trans uh, transitioning today is, is much more commonplace and much more um, accepted, I imagine, than it was back then. So take me through your transition journey. Was it hard to actually get the ball rolling, as it were? Well, luckily I knew some, I met some other trans girls in Birmingham and they said, oh, go to this doctor because he'll, and just tell him you need a repeat prescription for hormones and he'll give them to you. And he did. So um, so I started taking the hormones and then, uh, and then I got a refer, I went to my own doctor and said, well, I'm on these hormones. He wasn't, you know, he didn't ask too many questions. I said, I want to be referred to the clinic. So I went down to the clinic and um, and I started the process then. And I was told that it would take roughly two years. I'd do a year with a psychiatrist and then I'd be on the waiting list and that would be another year. But unfortunately, Dr. Randall and I clashed so much that it took three years before he recommended me, by which time the waiting list was two years. So I had to wait five years. And it seemed a long time, really long time, at the time. And I remember being very upset if I went to see him and he didn't recommend me. Then I was really crushed for the for a few weeks. But I just thought, no, I know I, this is going to happen and I'm, it's, I'm just going to stick it out and wait for it to happen. Just like with the theatre, really, I always have I always have the notion that it would it would work out in the end. So I just kept pushing forward with that. So was that the moment of feeling comfortable in your own skin finally? Was that the kind of like pivotal moment once the transition had happened uh, to think, OK, now here I go. This is the real Adele. Yeah. And interesting enough, uh, I had a very good friend at university. He said, oh, I was thought that you were wearing a mask at university because we never really quite knew who you were. And and then when I heard that you transitioned, I thought, oh, she's put, a, you know, he's put another mask on top. But I realised she'd take, taken off the mask and now I can see you properly for the first time. And that meant so much to me when he said that. And what was the reaction of friends and family, like, with your family members as well? I mean, was the reaction good? Was it something that they were very supportive of? It was a mixture, really. My parents had split up by then. My father was living with somebody else. And um, I hadn't been in touch with him since since I was uh, 17. And I told my stepbrother, first of all, and then I told my stepmother, and then I told my stepsister. She found it tricky to come to terms with, to start with. And um, it took quite a long time to come to terms with it, but we're best buds now. And I'm very, you know, I'm best friends with her. Uh, I mean, I'm very good friends with her son, and now he has a son as well who's come to see Fascinating Aida. And he's very impressed that I'm in the Doctor Who universe because I, uh, I, <laughs> I do big Finnish audio uh, recordings. So, uh, yeah, so that was fine. My father wrote to me and said he'd heard that I was transitioning and would I 
come and see him. And I wrote to him and said, why? What have we got to talk about now? You know, you've never been very supportive of me. And he went, oh, don't be like that. And uh, so we we had a, some correspondence. And then I went to see him. And um, yes, he seemed very supportive at the time. But he was about to emigrate to Australia. So uh, he went off to Australia. And then when he came back, it was like he'd forgotten that he'd ever was going to be nice to me about it. And he went back to his usual self. He um uh, he would never kiss me. He'd only shake my hand. And uh, he came to see Fascinating Aida once and thought that Dilly Keane was a genius. Well, I'm, I don't dispute that. And that Marilyn um, had a lovely voice. And I was lucky to be in the group. Wow. So, um, so yes. Yeah, so I, I didn't have a great relationship with him, I have to say. But my stepmom and my my step siblings, they were all, they were all fine. And uh, I think the more and more that people got used to me, I think they were all worried I was going to be an embarrassment to them in some way because I'd always been so uh, slightly, you know, outrageous in the past. And then they saw that I had just really settled down once I became a woman. And uh, and now, of course, they all come to my sh- they all come to my shows. And uh, yeah, it's good. It's very good. It took a, it took time, but we got there. Do you feel, looking back now, I mean, you know, you're a, a beautiful transgender lady in her early 70s. You were a trailblazer. Do you look back on that time and think, yes, I was? Or was it for you? It, it seems like it was almost like a very sort of normal thing for you to do. It was like, no, this is what I have to do. So I was resolute and I was going to do it. So do you look back at it very matter of factly? I do, actually. I do. And I have to say that I I really feel for the young ones now because there was a path I was on a pathway and I knew I you know I was doing I had gone through the steps I was seeing the doctor and then I got my documents and and uh and then finally I I got the surgery but I don't think any of them have that hope anymore because you can't even get an initial appointment now and there is there wasn't a backlash back then because there were so few of us People didn't really recognise us unless, you know, well, they read me in, in the early days, but pretty soon they didn't. And uh, and Dr. Randall's attitude always was stealth. He was he believed a great deal in stealth. Um, but everybody at the civil service knew what was going on. But they had a policy of non-discrimination. So it was a great place to be. And actually, when I took time off to have surgery, uh, they were, you know, they paid my full salary and everything. So I, I you know, I thought I did a pretty good job of it, really. I think I worked it. I worked it out um, very well. But you know, I'm an educated middle-class uh, white woman, so uh, I think you know the odds were stacked in my favour. I have to say. Did you ever experience any, you know, upset from people around you? I mean, I know you mentioned about your father, but maybe like colleagues or people, you know, random people in the street being rude or violence against you. Was there ever any any of that experienced? Uh, I mean, there'd be the odd remark in the street sometimes. I mean, I I do remember, and it was not that long ago, I was on a tube and I'd, I'd rushed for the train and it was very hot on the train and I was you know, not looking my best because I was a bit hot and sweaty. And this guy started on me and started calling me names. And, of course, nobody in the tube did anything, you know. And uh, I just, uh, or I provoked him slightly. I said, well, you know, if you, uh, oh, that's right, because he said, what what will I have to do to make you hit me? And I thought, well, because if I hit him first, then he could smash me to pieces, you see. So I I thought, well, I can see right through that. And of course, I'm not going to do that. I said, no, I'm not going to hit you. And if you hit me, then I shall have you arrested and charged with, with assault and you'll go to prison. 
And he went, that doesn't bother me. I've been to prison already. I said, oh, is that where you learned to bend over? And he didn't like that. And um, and I remember he was sitting right by me with a with a pole in front. And I thought, he's so drunk, I could just literally get his head and smash it into that pole now. But then I remembered my stepmother, who was a very calm, wonderful woman. And she was just saying, no, I wouldn't approve of that. <laughs> so, and I'm glad I didn't, because at the next stop, some seats became available and his girlfriend and her mother came and sat the other side of me. So that was all, uh, and they were all having a go at me. And I just stayed quiet and just looked and was disgusted everybody else who was putting their you know up behind their newspapers and then i i got off and they said oh running away i said no this is my stop thank you very much and i just got off and then as soon as i got to the platform my legs went from under me i had to go and sit down but uh, but i've never touched wood i've never ever been assaulted for being trans so and long may that remain Absolutely. Do you have a lot of contact with the trans community, the younger trans community now here in you know, the 2020s? And because you are such an inspiration for so many people, um, what do you think of the state uh, that the trans community or the experiences that the trans community are having to go through uh, in the here and now? Oh, I think it's horrific. And I've, I've, I feel I don't know a lot of young trans people. I met I met a few recently because I made a documentary back in the 80s called Sex Change Shock Horror Probe. It was on Channel 4, directed by my friend Christine Clark. And uh, it's having a resurgence. It's really, so they put it on at the Prince Charles Cinema. And I went along. And there were lots of young trans girls came up to me afterwards and said, oh, yes, your words, you know, inspiration, icon, and all the rest of it. It's a bit, I don't really know what to say to that, really, because I, I didn't set out to be that. And I feel that there are others who have uh, blazed the trail before me, you know, because I looked up to April Ashley. And I, I actually had the honour of meeting her a few years ago, and to me, she was she was the icon, and uh, and Caroline Cossey as well. And, you know, Caroline went to the um, European Court of Human Rights to fight her case. And I've never done anything like that. I've just felt that being a successful trans woman is is my statement. Really, you know, I feel like, like I'm a well-adjusted person, and I feel now for the youngsters. They just don't, because they're not getting the help they need, they don't know where to turn. And I think a lot of them are, uh, uh, you know, know, a a little bit messed up because of it. And it's not their fault. I'm not saying that. It's because they don't feel that they're getting any support now. And when this government is so anti-trans, I mean, it's really anti-trans. I've never heard a dialogue like it for a very long time. It makes you frightened. And I wrote to my MP recently and I said, well, if, if this bill goes through, that we must all be judged by our nascent gender, does that mean that they're going to take away my female birth certificate, my gender recognition certificate? And she said, well, it sounds very much like it. She's a Labour MP, I hasten to add. Um, and uh, she said, but rest, rest assured, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on it. What would be your words of advice to anybody listening today who maybe is in a position uh, like you were, you know, many moons ago, thinking they want to transition, but they're, or they know that they're in the wrong body, but they worry about the reaction of people around them? What would be your advice to people out there? Oh, well, it's always difficult to say, isn't it? Because you have to have that streak it depends what your situation is. I mean, if if you're if you're in a heterosexual relationship with children, that's one thing. If you're a youngster, I would say 
yes, sooner rather, you know, if you're sure, sooner rather than later. Don't 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 put it off because the longer you leave it, the more miserable you'll get, and the harder it will be to to then go through the process. You've got to have, I think, you've got to have strength and resolution. And um, I just wish that there were more facilities. I mean, they've they've, they've closed a, another clinic just the other day. I heard people turned up. And there was a notice on the door to say it was closed. So wh what are they supposed to do? Well, how can they how could they get help? And I think that's why self identification was going to be in a very important step. But since they're not going to allow that, um, there have to be more people in the field. But I remember when I, when I was first going through it at the Gender Identity Clinic in Charing Cross, that even then that the department was was uh, under scrutiny even then, and people were saying, "This is a waste of resources. This is this is uh, non-urgent surgery. This is and um, we the money could be better put to use somewhere else." So it's been going on since since the beginning of time, and that's why I think Dr. Randall was so strict in his criteria because he couldn't afford to have a failure he couldn't afford to have somebody who regretted it afterwards so he really put it as he always said if you can get through me you can get through anything and uh although it was pretty it's a bit like boot camp i think you know pretty horrible but you get a better result well in my opinion although at the time it seemed awful awful and um you know and i have a friend who transitioned when she was in america when she was 15 and i thought how marvelous that would have been but i suppose what you go through to make you the person that you turn out turn out to be so um i'm the product of that and that's all i can say really what age were you when you transitioned i was 21 when i it was on my 21st birthday that i took all my uh male clothes to the charity shop i lived as a woman from then on that must yeah. have been a moment taking the clothes to the charity shop. That must have been like when you walked away from there, you were like, yeah, that's a pivotal moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it had to be done. Uh, I mean, I'd been, you know, I had been dressing a bit before then, but then I thought, no, you know, this, now is the time. You just got to do it from now on. So um, and that's what I did. But I don't know where this comes from, this, this, uh, you know, this, this self-belief, but it, it was there and, and, uh, and it turned out, to, I turned out to be correct. Absolutely. You are living your best life. And that best life includes the glorious, fascinating Aida. Um, tell the story of your audition and sort of entry into the world of fascinating Aida, because this is this is a glorious story. Well, basically, I was um, working as a, I say manager, I wasn't really a manager. My friend who worked for the Financial Times, who lived upstairs, decided he wanted to become a male stripper and his uh, part time. So I would go along with him and he was doing a, he was a quick change. I'll tell you about the act in a minute, but um, there were a lot of clothes that had to be picked up at the end. And then, you know, artists never handle money. So I would handle the money, but he got all his own gigs, but it was great I, uh, going around uh, um, with him. Uh, I'll quickly tell you about the act. He came on as a sort of dirty old man, shuffed, sh took that off. Then he was a priest underneath took that off, then he was James Bond, and he took that off, then he had a bl black wet look t-shirt and some sexy red shorts, and he took those off, and underneath he had a jeweled codpiece with a big fake penis sticking out of it. And then as the music came to a climax, he, he put his 
and hand inside, and there was a syringe in there, and he squirted milk out of the end. <laughs> That's quite some act. Very, very, yeah, very popular. Anyway, so he and I went to the Donmar Warehouse one night that was being run by Nika Burns, who now owns half the West End. And um, we went to see an, uh, an American woman called Bertice Redding, who was over here. And she did her own show, and then she had a late-night cabaret where people from West End shows would pop in. And... You know, they were doing show tunes and stuff. And I said to John, I could do that. I could do that. And uh, so he went, he found Nika and he said, oh, I'm here tonight with Adele Anderson, you know, the jazz singer, because I still had my jazz residency at the time. And she, we'd love to hear her do just a couple of those standards that, you know, she's made so much her own. And Nika went to the band and said, any of you work with Adele Anderson? She apparently, she's a jazz singer on the scene. They went, no. She thought, hmm. Okay. So she came over, but she, I was wearing a bright yellow suit and she liked the look of that. And she said, well, I can't uh, ask you to sing tonight, but come back next week and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you a spot. So I went back next week and I sang Anything Goes and I made up a second, even dirtier verse than sniffing cocaine at parties. And um, I think there were whips and things involved in it. And she really liked it. And she had an idea to put me together with a blonde girl who wore leopard print. But in the end, she decided to audition me for Fascinating Aida because she was directing them at the time. And I went along to Dilly's house and uh, and I had to sing. She said, what's your range? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'll just start at the bottom and go up. So I sort of went, do, 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 do. And they went, oh, right, okay. Um, and then famously, Nika asked me, there's only one way to ask you, are you a man? And I said, no, because I thought, well, that's the wrong question. You didn't ask me the right question. And anyway, I'm probably not going to get this job, so I don't need to tell you my my life story. And then when I did get the job, you know, I had a bit of a quandary because then I said to my friends, well, perhaps I ought to come clean you know, tell them now. They went, no, you got the job on your own merits. So I joined it. But pretty soon, the, the you know, the truth came out. And uh, there were slight repercussions at the time. But I was too invaluable to the group by then. So <laughs> I, I got, but Dilly, no, Dilly would never have sacked me. But, you know, there were others. And, and even the management was saying, well, well, I don't think this is going to do your group much good. And she went, no, she's the one. She's the one. So, And uh, she's been my staunchest ally for nearly 40 years now. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have. And I think being in Fascinating Aida has made me more womanly because even though we're a camp group, we're just living and working with two other women all the time has, has uh, rounded me, I think is the word. Yes, knocked any hard, hard edges off, rounded me very nicely. So you joined Fascinating Aida in 1984. Then in 1985 at the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, there was a review from the Financial Times that said, you could have fooled me that the one with the smoky brown voice isn't a man in drag. That must have felt like a, a bit like a kick in the teeth at the time, Adele, surely. Oh, it was awful. And that's when it all came out. And that's when they told me that they knew already. And they'd been kind of like keeping it from me. And, and I didn't. Uh, actually, they've they've shielded me a lot from things because apparently there were lots of discussions going on, as I say, with management and all the rest of it about it. And um, yeah, I was very very upset. Although if I looked, if I got a review like that now, I would think take it as a compliment. I would think, well, yeah. And in fact, somebody who saw me 
do that on stage, then employed me to do it in a film, a terrible, terrible film that occasionally comes up called Company Business with Gene Hackman and Mikhail Baryshnikov, Natch. And um, where basically I was a Marlena impersonator in a Berlin nightclub. So, it, you know, it all worked out in the end. Uh, and it was slightly difficult, actually, on the film set because they had all, they rounded up all the drag queens in Berlin and put them all in this scene. And quite a few of them were Marlena impersonators and they wanted who this, you know, where they got this English girl to come in and do it. But anyway, yeah, so it's and I'm still doing that song to, to this day. So, it, it, <laughs> but it was horrible, horrible, horrible at the time. But uh, and then the papers started um, sniffing around, of course. So we broke the story ourselves in The Observer and then they kind of went away. But a few years later, um, they did a double page spread of me in the News of the World, which was, again, very unpleasant. But when I look at what, what you know, what was said, it was very mild compared to what people uh, reveal about themselves now. And with the News of the World article, I mean, that, that literally came out of nowhere then. It was kind of like them catching up and being lazy journalists of something that had happened a long time ago. Yes, and they were very sneaky about it because they, the journalist claimed to be from a different newspaper, I think from the Sunday Mirror or something, and he said, oh, you're always interviewed together, all three of you. I'd like to do, you know, something different and speak to each of you individually. So he spoke to the other two, but not for not very long. And then he invited me out for dinner. Big, such a rookie mistake. And obviously, after a couple of glasses, you tend to be slightly freer with what you say. We were just about to go back to Australia for the second time. And he said, did you like Australia? And I said, oh, yes, I had a wonderful time. Uh, the last time I was there, I had a wonderful love affair. And basically, I have to tell you that Australian men are rather wonderful. And it, it sort of came out as if I'd shagged my way around Australia, which I had. But I don't know that I actually said that in the interview. <laughs> I was young and beautiful at the time. You can't blame me. But you know, and they were willing. Yeah, that was that was horrible. And they took a really ghastly picture of me lying on the steps of a Sydney Opera House in the open air and the wind was blowing and it was not it was not a good angle and I'd, I'd looked and I think the, the the headline was sex is so much better now now that I'm not a man very news and, of the world though right for quite frankly I know. that was that was wrapped around somebody's chips the next day so do you know what it was yesterday's news I know, news. I know. Um, but uh, but I I've never I've never drunk alcohol and done an interview ever since that, that that would be my big tip to anybody, you know. I see what happens on Graham Norton, you know, when, he, when they've had a couple. We so, live uh, and learn, quite frankly. Um, yeah. Let me, um, with Fascinating Aida, I mean, I'm, I've been a fan of Fascinating Aida for many, many years. Your songs, I mean, let's talk about the song Prisoner of Gender first off, mm. because that is the one that, you know, it's an iconic song, and I'm going to use that because it is you owning your identity, owning your true self, and, you know, using it as almost like an anthem for, for the euphoric state that you now find yourself in. But other people listening to that song, um, it's a song that they take great that they take great interest in because it's something that they relate to as well. You must get so many people saying that that song is so important to them. Absolutely. Uh, we've given up, unfortunately, going out to meet the audience afterwards ever since COVID. We used to go out to front and we'd sign things and uh, sell our CDs. Well, nobody buys CDs anymore. And 
it got a bit like a bun fight, unfortunately, because in the old days, people would come up and say, would you sign this for me? Now they come behind you and they stick their arm around you and they want to have a selfie and mum can't get the camera to work properly. And, and it all got a bit too much in the end, really. But um, when we used to meet them, yes, I had, I had uh, a young woman come up to me and tell me that her four-year-old child was trans and what an inspiration the song had been. I, had, I got a letter from a trans man who said that he'd taken his mother to see the show and on the way back, it was the first time that she would ever talk about being trans to him. I think the saddest one I had was a girl from Singapore who said that she'd met her husband in Singapore and they got married and he did not know that she is trans. Still, he doesn't know. And they were living, they'd been married a few years and he was wondering why they were, she wasn't having any children. And um, she said, we have the same doctor and I can't even get any hormones because I can't go to, to my doctor because I know he would tell my husband. I used to believe in stealth in the old days. Well, that's what I was told by Dr. Randall. And I just think stealth is un uh, unhealthy. You have to be open, unfortunately, now. I mean, I, I, I hated being called a trans woman when I was younger, but I own it now. I mean, it's important. I think uh, one can't, you know, one can't pretend that that isn't the case. And why should I? Because I'm, I'm proud of it. And I think um, a lot of trans people, male and female, are doing such great things now in the world. You know, we're all over the place. We're doctors and lawyers and not just entertainers, writers, everything. And uh, and some of us, I'm sure, working behind a desk somewhere. And uh, so I think it's just uh, important that we, you know, we have to stand up and be counted now. Absolutely. It's the glorious T of the LGBTQ, you know, plus it's just it's there, that T for a reason. Um, yeah. Can I ask about, I mean, can we can I have some lyrics from that song as well for people that haven't heard it? Because obviously on a podcast, we can't play it in the here and now because of music laws and licensing and all of that. But can we have some lyrics from the song that are particularly, you know, particularly strong and pertinent to yourself? What did I say then? Came the dreadful day that I uh, hit puberty. Hence this dreary music, um, something again, Schuberty. I remember that was a good line, Schuberty. Well, one line is, you know, the boys used to take the mickey out of me because I always sat to pee. And the girls sing, sat to pee, goodness me, sat to pee. Um, but what's so great at the end is we turn it into a into a kind of universal anthem and that basically says the other girls come forward and join me and we just say, doesn't matter who you are, you know, I think trans or transvestite, lesbian or queen, or something in between, you know, this, that we just should be nice to each other. And then uh, everybody is valid. I think that's, that's it. And Marvel, and there are, I remember somebody overheard one woman say, why, why is she singing that song? And she said, because she's a trans woman. She went, no, no, she's not. No, she's not. So yeah, it was fun. When was uh, uh, Prisoner of Gender actually written? Oh, it had a very long gestation. I think, my God, over 10 years ago, Dilly came up with the idea. When I was first exposed, the attitude that we took was nothing to see here. She's just a woman in a three-woman group. And that's how we did it. And we all shut down any discussion about it. And then, and then Dilly said, I think it's time now. You know, she's always ahead of the curve, I have to say. And I was very reluctant. I said, no, no. She said, well, why don't we just try and write something and see what we come up with? So we, we wrote some of it. And then... She could tell I wasn't really very keen, so it went in a drawer. And then she she broached it again a few years later. And I think this was the time when when uh, gay people were being rounded up in Chechnya and tortured and killed. And and I just thought, I live in a country where nothing, no harm is going to come to me, you know, in that way. 
course, it may still come in the future. We know that. But um, and I thought I'm in a privileged position and I, yeah, I will do it. And I've got the security of the girls with me. I was terrified the first time I sang it. I think it was at the Pleasance in North London. And then I got such a great response. And it's always had just a marvel, you know, standing ovations sometimes when I was doing it. But uh, I was quite happy to carry on doing it. But, you know, then I got cancer. So then we stopped doing that. And we, we I sang a song about <laughs> cancer called Big C. It comes to you, it comes to me. And it's as nasty as can be. And we did that for a bit. And that helped. There was a doctor, a surgeon said he, he wanted it played in his waiting room for all his patients <laughs> who were going to see him. That's the ultimate <laughs> accolade, then... isn't it? I, I love, I mean, having watched, you know, Fascinating Aida many times and seen you perform that on stage, mm. I love the fact that the intro to that is always, you know, cancer. It's hard to be funny about that, but we're Fascinating Aida, so we're going to make <laughs> it funny. And you do. There is something about Fascinating Aida that is just so, so unique. And I think that's why you know it's it's the 40th anniversary at the moment and you know you you girls are touring everywhere which is wonderful what do you think is the secret of fascinating Aida's success well I think the fact that it's musical you can get away with a lot more I think if you're if it's musical you lull them into a false sense of security with a beautiful tune and then you stick the stiletto in the ribs and I think because and because we're we're middle class and we're glamorous in our own way. I think, yeah, we just get away with it. And also because Dilly is ruthless with the writing, absolutely ruthless. I mean, I've been doing a song about widows for 53 dates and we've just rewritten it now for the next 53 dates because it wasn't quite pithy enough. And um, she she will never, you know, because um, somebody said, oh, 40th anniversary, you can just go out and do your greatest hit. She said, we cannot. We must. We've always got to be current. It's got to be right up to date. So, um, no, I think that's it. We, we've got our finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist, if you like, because we do political stuff, but we also do social stuff. I mean, we, we started out years ago with a song called Sloan Rangers when they were big. And then, then we went to New Men. You remember when New Men were a big thing and they oh, yes. were going in the kitchen? And then we did Yuppies. Yawningly uninteresting people paid irritatingly excessive salaries. That's what they were. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And many, many years ago, long before Woke came along, we did a song called Politically Correct, because we're politically correct, uh, all about the you know the rubbish that was going on even back then. Uh, not that it is rubbish. Woke isn't rubbish, don't get me wrong, but, you know, there was a lot of that sort of, you know, stuff around and renaming of things. We do, we've got a song about AI in the, in the latest show. Yes, we've, all, we've always got to have our finger on the pulse, and we, we, we read the news. Well, I read, I read the gossip. And the girls do the hard graft and read the, the news. And between us, we, you know, we come up with something. So you say there's a song about AI. I mean, I've got to ask because of that, you couldn't be more current. So uh, can we have a couple of lines from that one? I liked her watch so much that I got one for myself. It's linked with my Alexa that sits upon the shelf. My watch detected I was stressed despite my calm veneer and sent Alexa off to Amazon to order me some gear. They said it would do me some good. Imagine my amazement when I opened up the box. I, was, I came face to face with love eggs, ticklers, nipple clamps and cocks. Best of all, a gadget for both bottoms, front and back. I could program its vibrations from my trusty Apple Mac. Its many speeds fulfilled my needs. 
Alas, the thing malfunctioned in the middle of a Zoom. I said I'd heard the doorbell and I had to leave the room. I couldn't switch it off because Alexa kept refusing. And when I asked her why, she said she found it quite amusing. AI, AI, it's marvellous, although it is really rather awkward when you're buzzing from below. My life is made right now, (laughs) Adele Anderson, my life is made. Um, Let's have some fun to end the podcast today. Five perfect dinner guests for you. They can be LGBTQ or otherwise. They can be dead, alive, preferably famous, so we know who you're talking about. Who would you pick and why, Adele? Well, I would definitely pick April Ashley because, I I mean, I've, I've read her book. A lot of people say that a lot of it is fiction, so I'd just like to have delved a bit deeper. And for people that don't know who April is? April Ashley was really one of the very first people to transition in this country. Uh, I think there'd been the Honourable Roberta Cowell before then, and there was a, there was a trans man as well. She uh, was born in the slums of Liverpool. She uh, worked uh, in a restaurant in Torquay or somewhere, and shared a room with John Prescott, of all people. Random. Obviously, she was in her pre-days. And then she joined the Merchant Navy. Um, and then she went to Paris and she um, joined a drag uh, troupe there. And there were two famous French girls. There was one called Bombay and one called... Um, oh, what was the other one called? Anyway, they were the first two to go off to uh, Dr. Buros, who was the only man in the whole world that was doing a gender reassignment surgery. And I think she, April then went, and she was about, only about his sixth patient. Anyway, she came back to London and she became a Vogue model. She walked the catwalk and she was photographed and it was all marvellous. And then she met the Honourable Arthur Corbett, who was a divorced father of four, and they got married. And then I think she ran off with an Italian count or something. So he, he didn't sue for divorce. He sued for an annulment on the grounds that she was not female. And there was this huge court case that took place in front of Justice Onrod. And she went through so many indignities, she had to submit to something called the three-finger test, where doctors had to stick three fingers up her vagina to see if it was, you know, qualified as a as a proper vagina. Not, not just members, not just the prosecution counsel, but the defence counsel as well had to do it. And she was very dignified throughout the whole thing. But anyway, she lost the case. And as a result of that, trans people were no longer allowed to marry because people had been doing it sort of, you know, on the, on the down low. She had to leave England. People started spitting at her. And, you know, people who lauded her before start, started, you know, apparently a woman came up to her in the street and slapped her face. And so she went to live in a, America, I think, and worked, sold perfume in a shopping mall. And then she came back and was crowned the Queen of Hay on Wye by the by the guy who, who, who and she she um, then started really actively campaigning for for a female birth certificate, and um, so she was a pioneer in her own right. And after she was it before she died or after I think a year after she died, there was a whole exhibition about her at the Liverpool Museum of Liverpool, and uh, she she achieved great fame all over again. Which so, she would make yes. a fascinating dinner guest, absolutely. So absolutely. that's the first one. So who would the other four be? Who would the other four be? Goodness me. I think probably um, I would have liked to have had Paul Newman. 
Uh, just to look at him, really, I think that would, that would be enough. He wouldn't have to say much, I think. Although I think he was a very fascinating person. Did a lot for charity with his mayonnaise, didn't he? So, he did. And you could serve his pasta sauce. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I think Peter Tatchell, I'd like to meet, have a proper conversation with Peter Tatchell because he's, he's so erudite about these things. And the Baroness Joan Bakewell would be my fourth one because she has been actively campaigning. I'm a patron of Humanist UK and she has been actively campaigning for um, humanist marriage to be recognised. I mean, there are humanist ceremonies, but they're not actually recognised by law. Because you're a humanist um, celebrant, aren't you? Well, no, I'm not. I, I trained to be one, but purely out of um, uh, self-aggrandisement because my my uh, friends were going to get married the following year. And I said, oh, I'll marry you. So I, d- I did the course. And then I married one lovely gay couple who lived quite locally to me. And that, that was marvellous. And then my friends, when they discovered that they'd have to pay twice because a registrar will not come to a humanist, will not share space with a humanist. So you have to go to the registry office first, particularly if they hear that you're going to have a humanist so many afterwards. They can be quite tricky because you should be able to get married for £45. And they say, oh, yes, we do offer that service. It, it's uh, at 9am every second Thursday in the year, you know, whatever. Um, but we could offer you could get married here on Saturday and it will cost you £450. So uh, it's it's a bit of a scam that they are operating. There's this petition to, to be recognised has been with the government for about six or seven or eight years. And they keep putting it off. They keep saying, oh, we've got to do more you know, research. They've no intention of passing it, I don't think. And it's very annoying. And unfortunately, one of the people who was advocating for it was Crispin Blunt, who seems to be in somewhat disgrace at the moment. I don't know the full facts of it. Uh, so, uh, again, it's sort of been, you know, pushed back because if, I don't know who's responsible for passing it. Is it the Home Secretary? As you know, we've had a, they've had a lot on their plate recently. So, so we'll see. <laughs> that's so, why they never got, that's why they never got round to repealing the gender recognition certificate because they decided to have focus groups and things. Mm-hmm. And so it's no, nothing has changed. So actually, as the law stands, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're all right. But if they um, if they then start introducing clause twenty eight into schools, you know, and saying that you're, you're you're you won't be allowed to discuss it or give any help or whatever, we'll be right back where we were. In, mm. We need to move to the future in yeah. the right direction. Um, yeah. So that that would be a wonderful dinner party. Going back to the dinner party, I am loving the guest list there. Um, can I ask you about your best experience in an LGBTQ plus safe space? Is there a particular club that you've gone to or a bar that literally feels like total home to you? Oh, I don't know. I don't go to clubs. I, don't, I think the Yard is my favourite. Do you know it? I do indeed. Why yeah. do you like the yeah. Yard in London? Lots of interesting people go there. Particularly in the summer, the boys have their tops off behind the bar, which is always a nice, nice to look at. Um, and they have an outside space for, if I happen to be smoking, at the time um i i only smoke i smoke if i'm not working so and if i am working i i i go cold turkey so and uh i've had lots of lovely times when i was um having chemotherapy every friday i would go and meet my friend in the yard afterwards and drink up drink a bottle of red wine probably not an ideal combination but you know it got me through and um 
I don't drink red wine anymore. It's a bit too too harsh on my insides. But yeah, it, it was a great place to go and just unwind after having spent the day not, not feeling very well. And so, it, yeah, has great, great memories. And it's a lovely space and an old coaching yard. So, it yeah. certainly is. And they do a nice red wine. I can testify for that myself. <laughs> Have you ever done the gay holiday, Adele? No, nobody's ever asked me. No, nobody's invited me to Sitges. Well, we need to change that immediately. It's never too late. Um, final question. What's the proudest, most rainbow-flavoured moment of your life? Most rainbow-flavoured? I think... Uh, well, uh, first of all, I did Pride many, many years ago. We used to do like we did. We did a parade for the miners as well. We did a, a thing, and I remember getting up on this float. We came on in the in our beautiful. Dilly Keen said, "Hello, we are Fascinating Aida, and we support you today." And then we, then we did and sang so on a sequin, probably, which has sort of become a bit of a gay anthem, I have to say. And then this year, actually, I did Pride again for the. First time in a very long time. And I was on the trans stage in Soho Square with three other wonderful performers, including Miss Kimberly. So I I, I think I've, I've, I step in and out. I'm perfectly happy in the heterosexual world being heterosexual. And I'm perfectly happy in the in the gay world being trans. So, uh, so I have the best of both worlds, I think. I would never get, I remember when I transitioned first, my father said, oh, well, first of all, he was happy because it was a medical condition and the doctors were going to fix it, you see. And he said, and now you'll be able to give up hanging, hanging out with all those dreadful homosexuals. And I said, well, those dreadful homosexuals are the people who have kept me going all this time when you've been over. So, no, I don't think I will be doing that. And long may it continue that you hang out <laughs> with us all, Adele Anderson. Um, obviously, Fascinating Aida on the tour now for the 40th anniversary shows. All details at fascinatingaida.co.uk. It has been an absolute joy to speak to you today. And can I say thank you for joining us on the podcast and proving that, Adele Anderson, your life is indeed a gay old time. That's it for this episode of A Gay Old Time. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Adele as much as I did. What a fantastically inspirational lady. And don't forget to check out Fascinating Aida if they are appearing near you. If you'd like to experience more rainbow joy, then please subscribe and follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple or wherever you are listening right now. And do share it to anyone else you think would love to listen in. Thanks a million to Juliet at Pineapple Audio Production for making everything so gorgeously sparkly and wonderful. I'll be back soon with another episode featuring a deep and meaningful with another inspirational individual until then from me nigel may sending all the love and hoping that whatever you're up to if it applies to you you're having a gay old time enjoy